0: Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention, Metatopia, at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 312, The 100GP Pearl, Economics and Trade as Design Elements. Presented by Jason Bitt, Rob Donahue, Emily Dresner, and Kenneth Haidt. Hello everyone, and welcome to uh, the 100 GP Pearl, Economics and Trade as Design Elements. My name is Jason Pitt at Genesis of Legend Publishing. Uh, and to my left is Ken.
1: Uh, depending on where the screen is, sure. <laughs> I am looking at the screen. To my I left, am, is I am Ken. I'm not to your left in literally any sense, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm Kenneth Pai. I'm a game designer. Uh, uh, I think that probably the last thing I did that was fundamentally about uh, economics and trade was uh, one of the Star Trek role playing games that I did for Decipher. But in the interim, I've also written Trail of Cthulhu, Knights Black Agents, and Fall of Delta Green, as well as I guess most recently, I wrote the price tables for um, uh, Haunted West by the lovely and talented Chris Spivey. Uh, so the uh, I got to to go dig around and find out about how horse flu and the Comstock load changed prices in the American West, and then ignore them because Chris did not want me to talk about them in any great detail. But that was good fun. Uh, <laughs> above me, in every sense, is the, uh, the actual reason this panel <laughs> is going to exist, is Emily Bresner. Uh, ah. the, the great, the mighty, the powerful. Above and to the right of you, it's Twitch.
0: Everything's <laughs> broken.
2: Whoa, this is getting weird. <laughs> Hey, hi, my name is Emily Dressler. I am the co-author of Swords of the Serpentine from Pelgrim Press with Kevin Culp, who is watching this. Hi, Kevin. Hi. Uh, I also write the Dungeonomics column for Critical Hits, which hopefully I'll go back to writing after the pandemic ends. And I've written a whole bunch of other junk in my past, which I'm going to admit I don't remember what it is, but there's a bunch of stuff. And, uh, actually, strangely, like, in this corner, which is <laughs> that right, is, uh, is Rob.
3: This is the worst game of Family Feud ever. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm Rob Hollywood
1: Donahue. That, yes! That, uh... <laughs>
3: Duh, look, We made the shape! Uh, I'm Rob Donahue, uh, co-founder of Evil Hat, sometime writer for them and some other stuff uh mostly i'm here because i read weird news articles get ideas and then write egregiously long twitter threads about them uh this is not a healthy hobby but it is mine Um, and as with ken i'm mostly here to watch m because uh, she's (laughs) a dangerous machine uh
0: so before we get started i'd like to quickly talk about food yes let's talk about food food in duskfall uh never gonna live that thread down nope nope, nope. uh so rob
3: what's the do they board? eat in blaze in the dark oh uh, well what do they eat they eat eels right off the bat because we know they've got yeah. eels and everyone knows eels are delicious and importantly, eels are like one of the things that show up a lot in Dishonored because jelly eels show up and shows up in cans all the time, and that is such a disgusting thought that it is absolutely a good yes. mesh. The problem is you can't just live on eels alone; you got to have some vegetation. And they got, you know, they got the electric lights and stuff that grows things for rich people. But the problem is that's uh, only so much food. There's only so many calories. People need a lot of food to get through the day. So what grows well in the dark? Well, fungus grows well in the dark. That's right. Yep. Oh, boy. All right. Fungus plus Blades in the Dark. Nothing nothing terrible could come from that. Um, now, okay, fungus needs a lot of organic material to grow on. Why do we have a lot? Oh, it's like we're harvesting giant creatures for barrels and tankers full of their blood, which we then distill into energy. Huh. I bet the waste product for that is a fantastic organic source material for growing mushrooms on. Uh, and I'll leave the rest of it as an exercise to the reader. But let's just say that that is an excellent source of food that you don't want to think about.
2: Can I be the guy who corners the market on that particular fertilizer and then uses, basically uh, charges rents on Duskvall? No, nope, modified? nope.
3: You get to be the beekeeper.
2: I get to be the beekeeper?
3: Because nobody is more badass than a beekeeper in Duskvall. Think about what is involved in keeping plants pollinated in that oh, kind of environment. Um, I'm fairly certain that it's bats instead of bees. Sure.
0: Either way, maybe both
2: It could could be both, maybe they're competing Stinging bats,
3: I I think they're stinging bats Yeah,
0: they're stinging bats, they're totally stinging bats Uh, By the way, uh, I am totally going to bring the innovation of um, uh, demon whale blood pudding Yes Because you know that that's going to be very popular It's hearty
3: and comes in a can (laughs)
1: I'm just a traveling, a traveling merchant man with a pack of vitamin A supplements. That's right. <laughs> maybe, yep. maybe your city would not like to have pellagra. I don't know. I'm just a guy with <laughs> vitamin A supplements.
2: And that is how you rule Duskfall.
1: Yep. Uh,
0: so, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is we have just created a city that would literally kill for a box of uh, slightly moldy strawberries
3: and some wilted lettuce. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, the vitamin C component is, uh, and and numerous things like that is just, just hard, but that is the joy of magic. Yep. You can hand wave a lot of things. I I think that, uh, you know, blood, blood mushrooms are probably nutritionally complete.
1: Grow are they? Big and strong and slim. Yes, people thought that about corn before <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they discovered. Yeah. Oh, everyone's got pellagra. It's
2: always it's always gets back to my thinking about what do people eat in the underdark, right? So we got a bunch of elves that live in the underdark, and oh, the elves live on city.
1: rainwater and lembus anyway. Right. They 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 don't have the same nutritional requirements
3: that yeah, people. Also, about, flumps like, have are people? very nutritious.
1: Flumps
2: are very nutritious. Do we have like a nutritional thing that writes out what is in a flump? Will if we, check we don't,
3: check DMs Guild in about six hours. <laughs> well, I mean, plumps do eat
0: uh, emotions. Uh-oh. Which are abundant. Which are a renewable At resource.
3: Second, that's However, we are At now point. getting into, into, uh, into Jason's uh, pet project of ecology. So <laughs> we're going to slide this back to money uh, <laughs> and offer a brief explanation for anyone who does not know why we have the title, the 100 GP Pearl. Um, and that is one hundred percent to Emily's credit. Uh, she wrote a magnificent piece um, that was an analysis of the impact on the of the identify spell on D and And with that <laughs> setup, I'm just going to hand the baton. To Emily, right. so she can tell us how this works.
2: So I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk. I need to take a short step backwards before I can start walking forward to explain exactly how this works. Which, by the way, many people broke it up, pointed out to me that this is not broken in 5e. So I will tell everybody who watches this Twitch: I know it's not broken in 5e that said it was a pretty good thought experiment so if we walk back then we start thinking about right economics economics is is we think about economics as money but it's not about money it's about how people organizations and governments produce consume and allocate resources right so what resources that we have how we use them how we spend them uh and we talk about, right, when we have the resources, what the incentives are around those those resources, what are the uncertainty and risk about getting those resources, right? How do we game out getting those resources? So, and there's two different kinds of economics that we can think about, right? There's microeconomics, which is how you know, individuals deal with those resources. So there's macroeconomics, where how uh, entire societies deal with those resources. And uh, what I find super fun about thinking about this is I'm a systems person. I'm a systems thinker. I think in systems. So I like designing systems that have like this coherent, like mesh around them and then figuring out how to destroy them utterly. And in this case, this is a destruction. Uh, so the, the 100 gold piece pearl uh, had actually bugged me for a while. If you, it's the old D&D third edition rules. If you look at it, it says that if you have a first level identify spell, every time you cast a spell, it consumes 100 gold piece. Um, 100 gold piece pearl. Okay, So you have to have 100 gold pieces to have the pearl to identify every time. We know that adventurers find a a large number of unidentified items. It's a very easy to get spell. But the question is, all right, we can get the 100 gold pieces to be able to buy the pearls, to be able to identify the items. But where does the pearls come from? So we have to start thinking about, all right, if we start modeling out, Like how many adventures and then on an adventure, how many magical items need to be identified per adventure? Plus, is that a a stable resource that you would find in any adventuring town that would be sitting outside of the hell mouth of some adventure? And then where do those pearls actually come from to be able to stock those booths that the adventurers are coming to, to be able to get their items identified? So that started with a trade network of those pearls have to come from somewhere in some large quantity to be able to support that continuing adventure community. So they had to come from somewhere. Well, pearls are found in oysters in the ocean, but... So we can think that if you have free divers that are selling pearls into this system, into this trade network to get into the trade communities that can go out to the booths that supply the adventurers, but if there's a higher and higher and higher number of adventurers, there's more and more pressures on the system. This is why we talk about economics is around resources. It's not just around money. So if we start actually putting pressure on the supply of those pearls but we start guaranteeing that they're they're basically price fixed at 100 gold pieces so we don't have any any price fix price fixing the prices don't float so that means that we have to enter more and more pearls into the system which means that now we are incentivizing people to go off and figure out ways that they can get more and more pearls which starts to enter scab pearls into the system how many of those pearls are good how many of them are bad how do we know So we have entire networks of basically press gaining people into going and diving for pearls. And then, well, who's diving for it? Well, it's sea people. So now we're going to enslave sea people see people to go and go and dive for pearls so that they can get them and put them into the system that they can go into these trade networks that they can go to the booths so the adventurers can get their swords identified which very slowly but in enslaves an entire race and starts to deplete the entire oceans of all pearls everywhere and all o- and all oysters anywhere so if you ever wanted to eat any anything that came up that uh any oysters that produce pearls you weren't getting any in restaurants anytime soon so, uh, but I mean, we could have fixed the system by changing the the hundred gold piece, but um, but it's fixed in the rules. So,
0: I, I you know. hate to be fair. They never said how big a hundred GP pearl has That's to be, true. and once you get scarcity, the smallest of pearls is priceless. That's right. That's, right. Um, That's right. Also, what happens when after you enslave all of the sea people and Songguan? Uh, that you secure all of their magic items, and now you have a surge of magic items coming into the market that need
1: identification.
2: Oh, then you have a real problem, <laughs> don't you?
1: Well, you can enslave the sea people, you can make them tell you what their magic items are. You don't need the pearls for that. Yeah, but you killed them all. No, you enslaved them. You can't kill yeah, them. Right they're, there. they're there to there were, get you he, pearls, Jason. No, these, these are magic racing. weapons. Magic I weapons are in the
0: hands of people who want to right. fight the people that are enslaving their people.
3: Much but, like ecology, the true purpose of <laughs> economics and games is to take small problems and turn them into huge problems.
2: That's right. Yep. So, yes. So, and figure out a way to inject crime into those into those problems. That's pretty much the core thing that we're looking for here. Is not so much that we're trying to figure out a system and then figure out how to break the system. We're trying to figure out how to break the system in a way that is rampantly criminal. So in this particular thing with the pearls, we're trying to figure out obviously an illegal solution to the pearl scarcity problem by introducing slave sea people so that they don't have to pay the sea people and they can get the maximum amount of money of the pearls that they're selling into the system. Um, Which obviously is crime. And then maybe the adventurers go and kill all the the slave drivers that are kidnapping all of the sea people. And then what happens to the whole pearl economy?
0: But clearly, Emily, something like this could never happen in the real world. We could never get a situation where economics lead to some kind of social injustice. Um, nope. Could you tell me about salt?
2: Oh, yeah. I like talking about salt. So, uh, so there's this thing called salt. Uh, salt's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, you actually see in Everseek that I actually have a call out to salt Um, so I'm super obsessed with the history of food, especially the, the economic history of food, because it's a resource that we produce, consume and allocate that everybody needs to have every human must have in the world. And, uh, humans can't survive without salt. It's not just that we can't, um, like we physically can't survive. If we don't have salt in our diets, we die. It's not just about preserving our food, but actually being able to eat it. But salt isn't distributed evenly throughout the entire world it's found in salt flats and in salt mines and in in particular pools around the around the world um, so it's not everywhere it's not even and um, so it's for uh, most of history whoever controlled the salt controlled the world entire empires have risen and fallen uh, there's one episode with the Polish empire and Poland was still an empire that uh, was crippled by a lack of salt and nearly collapsed in the uh, very early 19th century is a thing that has happened in recent memory. The reason that Venice is where it's at is because not because of its facing east towards Byzantium or its good um, harbor, although it has a fantastic harbor, but because it's actually sitting on top of salt flats. And for a thousand years, they did nothing but were the king's assault in the Mediterranean. Terrible things that have happened over salt. Uh, There's a lot of terrible things that have happened over salt. Uh, I I was
0: thinking of Gandhi to start.
2: Entire. Yeah, well, there's Gandhi. There's the entire history of England.
1: (laughs) The French Revolution.
2: The French Revolution.
0: Um, Yeah. Uh, Um, By the way, a small tangent. Um, salt is also the only, um, food product that we have that is not organic.
2: That's correct. Not,
3: it is true. not certified organic. Not true. Okay. There are some carbon yeah, and some other things like that, which are, which we mine. Basically, there's a fantastic book called Twinkie Deconstructed that is literally a tour through the ingredients of a Twinkie. Um, and it, if you want to find out about it, a couple other mineral foods that, yep. uh, that we eat. Yeah. But there's very few. Very few. Yes. Um, and salt is one of them. So Yeah. So so the three things that you can use to make any small problem worse economics, ecology, and nutrition. Yes. (laughs) Um so
1: on that economics is the uh field that governs the amount of access you have to the other two. Economics therefore becomes the choke point. That's right. With enough money, you can solve your problems yeah. of nutrition or your problems of ecology. If, uh, with uh, no money, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, not quite.
0: So let me tell you about the bats. This is a quick uh, diversion into ecology.
1: Stop the diverting bats... into ecology, Jason. This is an economic no. panel. Never. <laughs> they are That's intertwined. No, no you're Panarchy, my friend. Um, It's
2: gone right into ecology.
0: Bats. Bats are in trouble. Do you know what function economic function bats serve? Pollination. Tourism in Austin, Texas. <laughs> uh, that too. Also, they're delicious. I'm um, just saying. Um, but uh, if the bats You're the guy disappear, that
1: did it, then.
0: what can I say? Um, if the bats disappear, then it's really hard for you to pollinate your crops. So now you have famine. Insert the entire e. Uh, economic problem. And you can't solve that with money. Because there's no well, bats. They're all Oh dead. no, you totally can. Okay, okay you've got you enough money, have enough you can solve it for yourself. If you have enough skilled necromancers, uh, you uh, I good. hate to break it to you, but poor people are delicious. <laughs> that is true. Um, <laughs> but
3: e- that's delicious how is everything is deal.
0: intertwined. Fair enough. Um, fair enough. And on, a, on the topic of food and things being intertwined,
3: uh, exhibit B: The yes.
0: maple syrup.
3: Okay. It is so maple wrong syrup that continues to exist in a can
2: its, it's offending Rob. Rob, on, on a very,
3: level. very primal level, yes. um, it's
2: is not a place where maple syrup should be in a no. Can.
3: A can is not a place of honor. Um, hey, to be fair, this is grade A dark. Which is good, because well, especially because they also completely screwed up the naming uh, scheme recently, uh, and they're pretty much all lies now. Yeah, because um, you can't. Get they meaning right. Canada or they meaning Big Maple? Big Maple. Big Maple. They told There's no longer a grade B. Everything is now just different descriptors on grade A, and nobody it's like condom remembers. sizes. Yes, <laughs> disturbingly uh, so. And cool. now condoms full of maple syrup have entered my brain, and the things <laughs> that can go from there are just yep. Not that,
2: now we have to figure out who wants them and who's trying to steal them.
3: But, exactly, now, the, but the reason I Jason holds I, yeah. it up there is because of one of the greatest crimes of recent history. It yeah. is known as the maple syrup heist
0: because Quebec is responsible for producing roughly 80% of the world's maple syrup supply. Uh, and I think it's like 15% Vermont and 5% New Brunswick. New, New Hampshire like.
3: has, has has some productions up, but yeah.
0: Um. Um, so they have a strategic maple syrup reserve. Uh, right. And some enterprising criminals broke in with a truck and stole millions of dollars worth of... They smuggled this maple syrup across the border to New Brunswick, where I believe they were planning on shipping it. I'm not sure if they were planning on shipping
3: it to New Hampshire or shipping it overseas. There were a lot of questions as to what their plan was for how they were going to turn it into money.
1: But they had very specific The the questions arise whenever anyone enters New Brunswick. You have to say, (laughs) what were you doing? (laughs) That's problem number one, right? Right, yeah. Um, So this means that
0: we have legitimately had uh, a major multi-million dollar crime over maple syrup, which
3: is literally tree squeezings. Now, but this this actually brings us to a really tree question. squeezings. They are. But here's the thing. Uh, I, I think a lot of people hear that article and or hear about that. And the first thing that jumps to mind is like, why is there a maple syrup reserve? <laughs>
2: Well, what if it runs out, Rob? What happens well, if the maple syrup runs out? What happens if the price of maple syrup goes to very high and none of us can put it on our waffles anymore? What happens to the world?
3: My my goodness, are you suggesting that that maybe there's there's some more complexity to goods getting around than them just getting put in boxes?
2: I would never suggest such a thing.
3: Or are you suggesting that by maintaining a reserve, you
1: can control prices and leave them? at a high enough level that uh, the continued production of maple syrup becomes economical given how ridiculously labor intensive it is?
3: Wait, wait. Uh, are you saying that <laughs> that control of a resource, you know, is something that uh, both has elements of power and money to it? I mean, that, that sounds like something someone might use in a game. Uh, I, mean,
0: I mean, are you saying that there's variability <laughs> in production of natural resources year after year and particular, this can lead to gluts or uh, famines, depending on local conditions.
2: Hey, I'm I, telling you, man, price is just a signal rather than an incentive, you know? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I, I I migrate this more concretely to something like Dungeons & Dragons. That's right. It strikes me that, uh, what are the kind of things that might be a reserve, but it might need reserves in Dungeons & Dragons? Plus one Pearls. swords. Pearls! Pearls, there you go. Healing potions.
2: Sure.
0: Uh, What happens if there's a war that breaks out? You need to have enough healing potions in reserve.
2: Uh, Diamonds for resurrection spells. Yep. So where do the, where do the diamonds come from? How are they hoarded? How are they priced? Are they really going to be priced What the says that who controls that supply of diamonds? What if the bad guys control all the supplies of diamonds and all they can do is they can raise all their people up every time you kill them but every time your side dies that you know Joey is dead on the
0: um I would actually like to give props to Baldur's Gate uh 1 for having an iron scarcity and for specifically saying, dude, why can't we just make a wall of iron and then mine that? And the response being, do you want your sword to disappear with the dispel magic spell? Yes, I know
3: that doesn't technically work, but that was a great explanation. That was a like, "Mm." chef. And it's good. And and what that points to is actually something very important in games. We we talk about economics and all that. This is all super complicated stuff. Like, get two econo- economists in a room and get them to try to explain something, and then just you know tap the energy to heat the heat the room for the rest of the year. Um, but just explaining it enough to be interesting and nod things works fantastically well. Um, yep. Which is maybe a gener a kind way of saying BSing works, and that econ is a good way to BS, but. Uh,
2: Now, ECAD is a good way to describe systems, right? It's a way to to describe how how people, because games are ultimately about people and how people interact with a world, given a framework of rules and a system, right? Um, And it's it, it describes the, the incentives. So here's an example, right? Here's a D&D, here's this really stupid D&D example that works really great. So we have a framework that is Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. We all sort of understand what that framework is, how it works, how we communicate. And there's this cave called the Cave of Near Certain Death, right? We have the Cave of Near Certain Death. It has a huge magic item in it. That will either it will make us rich if we get it and we'll get a also because it's a game and game design one of the things that we'll get out of it is a super exciting fight and make us really powerful but if we go in but it's the cave of near certain death right so you have to start thinking about what's the with the game party what's the incentive versus what's the risk well the incentive is to go get the big you know the big magic item and have the really and the cool fight and the risk is um. Your characters might all be TPK'd. So if you're thinking about it's game design, it's just how do we set up the, the frameworks and the incentives so that people have a lot of fun? Because at the end of the day, it's all about fun, right? We're all having fun. But, uh, but I'll make it exciting, but also like be the, the economic driver to make them want to go into something called the cave of near certain death.
0: Also, to note, I'm the old man in the tavern offering you this quest as I take out life insurance on you adventurers going, who I
3: have commissioned ah. to go into the cave of near certain death. Right. See, the, the trick with that is no one's going to offer life insurance on adventurers there. That's, that's just the, the, the tables on that are terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> what it's you can thing. do is fund them. That's right. And basically uh, issue debt to let, the ma- let them get their magic items and whatnot, and then flip the debt.
2: Now we're going to sec- yeah. secu- no, securitize the debt. Yeah, of, all of the tranches. Debt, and all the tranches, and then we're going to get a bunch of investors to come and give us huge amounts of money. And exactly. all those investors happen to be dragons. So when all the investors <laughs> get wiped out, then we can actually financially wipe out the dragons. And that's why they're pissed off, and that's why they're attacking.
3: Well, test until right you discover that it is, in fact, the dragons who are issuing debt. Oh, yeah, of course. Because dragons actually believe in you know secure paper, and that's that's the whole point of the behind the horde thing.
2: <laughs> that's
3: right. They are they are they are smart investors and very conservative in that way.
2: So this is like well, well, mean, they funds. don't
3: they don't <laughs> invest in paper. Fun.
2: Papers are <laughs> right.
0: flammable. Yes. Now sure. diamonds and pearls, however, yep. those have
1: increasing demand. Pearls <laughs> are also flammable. Not to brand on your parade. Um, <laughs> the wait, I, pearls are the, flammable. I didn't know pearls are flammable. Come back, Harold. Well, yeah, just just <laughs> letting you know. Um, the uh, the I guess the more you know, you, you 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 opened a couple of boxes, Emily, and I think to maybe <laughs> tangentially connect this to game design briefly before we go herring off on our next uh, charming anecdote. Cool. <laughs> uh, we have two sort of overlapping concepts already, uh, and, then, and then the third one was. Economics, like everything else that's sort of complex, makes great story hooks if you know literally half a minute about anything. But moving back from that, like you pointed out, M. games themselves are economic systems. That The reward is fun, the incentive is the time you spend playing or engaging in the core activity. And that you, the designer, have to properly calibrate those incentives so that players when they play your game don't suffer a suboptimal result. And you have to make the rules uh both fluid enough that differing levels of investment can get differing levels of reward, but also unforgiving enough so that there's a genuine sense of engagement as opposed to just well we came in and told everyone that everything was great and we left. I mean that's not that games some games are like that, but if you want to make a game that has iterative playability, you don't want to design that way. So there's that level in which we talk about economics and game design. And then there's exactly. the level of, within the game, how much of our core activity is economic activity? And that is, I think, a question that you ask both as the designer and as the player. Because Traveler, for example, presumes that you are engaging, I think in the designer's mind, presumed that you were engaging in economic activity as the excuse to have space adventures. Whereas very rapidly in play the economic activity became the core activity and I may be you know traumatized by having run traveler for accounting majors <laughs> and thus had to start an interstellar war to uh, crash the currency markets but uh but that's but that is very much a standard lobe of traveler play was playing with economics and I Absolutely. think that That means that when you're designing your rules, you either have to say economics are going to be only a story generator or only an excuse. That's why our economics rules can remain as barely existent as they are in, say, Dungeons and Dragons, or they may be a robust part of gameplay, in which case you need to head in the traveler GURPS sort of direction. Right. You end, no. up
3: with, you end up with the real breaking point when you are only halfway between those things. The exactly, and joke that's where we're making early we started. Runs, for example, yep. yeah. Yep. The, the joke we were making before we started is that in D and D, a gold piece is a is a fraction of a magic item. Yeah, yep. that is that is what its value is because for all that Five E is actually this fantastic game of multiple currencies and economies and balancing and engines and stuff, its actual money system is like, what are you using the money for?
2: Magic items.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, now, the other two fun ways you can look at it is it is a portion of a vassal because there is a direct uh, hit point to gold piece uh, ratio uh, based on an infinite uh, number of healing potions that can be <laughs> produced. Uh, and there's also the, this is, a gold piece is a fraction of a castle uh, which is uh, accurate in first and second edition.
3: Yep, and, and we're talking about five D now. But five yeah. I mean, and five D's got things like the acquisitions, incorporated stuff, which is yes. um, based on making your adventuring more businessy. Um, which is, if that's your jam, it's it's super super fun. Um, but the point that that comes of this is if you are running a system that's got money in it what are the bounds on it? What's going to keep that under control? Because otherwise, you basically, if you've got nothing to spend it on and an infinite number of dungeons to loot, you're going to ultimately have all the money Sorry. and it's not going to make any mm-hmm. sense. Certainly right. all the liquidity. Yeah.
2: yeah, the liquidity. Yeah, so just to go back to what Ken was, was talking about in just game design, and I had mentioned you know, right, incentives and, and risk going back to the cave of near certain death, right? The incentive to getting to making it fun, to making something called the Cave of Near Certain Death fun, is that there's a promise of a really amazing fight in there. I I think getting the thing at the end is a bonus, but what we really want is that fun, that journey, that humongous fight. So like like players, they want to, to balance that risk. They want the risk to be high enough that it's really exciting and they feel like that they are risking something and uncertainty about what the outcome is. They also want the incentive to be able to go in and get something that's really cool and be incentivized to go and have that fight. So we were talking about that's like balanced straight up balanced engines and balanced rules engines, right? So so yeah, and there's a bunch of games that have really nice mm-hmm. balanced rules engines. I think Blades, I think, has a yep. really nice one. Uh, both in like a macro uh, point with the the gangs and how they balance the resources and then internally to the group and how the group works and passes around the incentives for them to work together.
3: And explicitly Um, abstracts the economics. I mean, coin is is an abstract currency for a good reason.
2: Yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time working with with the gumshoe engine trying to make the trade-offs of sorcery fun to make it awful, right, to give it a bunch of risk was in it using it but there's but there's an incentive to actually put it into play is that it's very colorful and it can be very powerful so but you could also like completely eat your character so there's risk to incentive and thinking about how we balance these things is an engine that makes sort of game design really go and then there's the inside of it where like there's money involved and i want to steal things like if i could i'm just gonna natter on about eversync for a minute Right? Please so we
1: do. Put, I was going to ask you if you didn't. So
2: yeah. So right. So I like put the salt flats in Eversink. I stole Venice's salt flats in Eversink. and it, it was ba- it's basically a, a hook there for me. It's a selfish thing to come back and be able to write some adventures because you start thinking about okay, and inside the game because the game has has rules to be able to do the social combat so that it doesn't all have to be taking your sword and hitting a thing. Right. It can be like a political fight and there's rules in there for political infighting and gang infighting and all that. You start to think, okay, what if I decide that all of a sudden whoever was controlling the salt flats doesn't have control over it anymore. Right. So now we've got an incentive. Somebody needs to control them because they're such a huge financial engine to the city and they have such political clout in the city. Plus, there's a bunch of risk, which is everybody's going to be diving for it at once. And what does that actually look like as a machine? And there's enough machinery in there to work it through. And then uh, there's different factions and different gangs. So you start thinking about, okay, from the incentive to be able to go do it from a game design point of view. Okay, there's an incentive to control this thing. Plus, there's an incentive outside of the game to go and want the players to control this thing because they're going to have fun social combat. And then maybe you decide who actually controls it is a, is like a mind eating fungus or something, and it eats everybody's brains who try to control the salt flats because it's Eversink and that's what happens. Or it's haunted by horrible ghosts from from beyond time. Or it's controlled by the salt god who's decided to possess everybody who tries to control it, or something cool like that. But uh, so we could go in a bunch of different directions I,
1: I, within I just... within. I'm go sorry. Uh, within Eversync. Uh, how did you? And if you said we didn't, we left it abstract. That's an answer. But yeah. I suspect it's not the answer. Um, how did you handle uh, different levels of wealth within nah. the party and oh, characters who get rich as a result of a Seven. sudden stroke of luck? Yeah, I, or, or, my I mean, rules. because the notion of a, of a merchant prince or a or a or a rich thief lord or something like that is core yeah. to the swords and sorcery genre, right? How did you how did you integrate that financial violence into play, or, or the or the notions of those sorts of things? How how did you gamify uh, being richer than the guy next to you? You're gonna love this. I don't I remember how the re- I don't remember how the wealth rules work in detail.
3: Oh god, they're so good. <laughs> oh. I'm They're so, so
1: good, Rob. Rob, can you tell us how good Emily is? Okay. <laughs> I wrote them. Kevin wrote them, so I'm not going to give a shout so out. These Kevin are these genuinely and, genius. And, and we're, we're not here about yep. Kevin. This is about yep. you, yep. Bob. Can you tell us how, how great Emily is?
3: Absolutely. And and I will <laughs> also throw in a one other thing that's fantastic about Eversync is that uh, it has the best tension in a setting I've seen between mm. power and money. That is me. Um, that, that that is, is that, me. that's totally <laughs> you. So you. Uh, in Eversync is brilliant in that uh, wealth, the wealth rules are about the effect of wealth, not about the acquisition of wealth. Because the general idea is if you're Conan, you are going to start some adventures with rubies spilling out of your, your hands as you are wandering in wrapped in gold and silks. And certain adventures, you're going to start just scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, yep. And you just make a decision at the start of play where you are on that spectrum. And it's represented in a effectively a balanced stat, which, if you're not worrying about it, you're just you know the, how broke or well off you are isn't really getting into play, uh, then it's at zero is in the middle, which I, I think technically it's at three because I think it's a one to five. Um, and you don't worry about it. But if you go up or down, what it effectively does is it creates a pool, which is what skills are for all intents and purposes with this, yep. and which, what are also social connections which you can use to do all kinds of things, but which also generate trouble according to what it is. So if you come in and you are super rich, you are, you are, you are Conan with all the money in the world, you will have the, the level two wealthy pool in effect. And that will do two things. One, you can use it to help on roles where having a bunch of money is going to help great go nuts and there are, is an existing rule system that it taps into that keeps it reasonably under control it's balanced it's not really an issue but you also are going to have problems and consequences that are tied to that which is to say some people really hate rich people um yep. and rich people draw a lot of attention not, Rob. i know shocking uh but by the same token if you go super poor then... i personally love rich people i just want to put that out there <laughs> yes. so rich people yep. if you're watching give give ken money big thumbs up Right there. Um, but similarly, by if you're the, the poor, it's, it's the dramatic version of poor. I mean, it's the dramatic Conan version of poor, which is, you know, you're in the gutters and in the streets, so it's much easier to interact with lower class people. And so, like, if you've got to fence some goods, but you're running around with high level money, that is going to drive a very different kind of play than if you're running around with low level money. It is a small, brilliant mechanic like so many things in Swords and Serpentine.
2: But we spent a lot of time, spend a lot of time thinking about the the faction balancing, right? Because it's, if you're going to have an a economic system with a with a, a social combat and a wealth mechanic, wanted to have balanced factions. So we have old money and new money and common money and thieves guilds, and uh, the watch is its own thing. So it's literally we can have like cop incentives to be able to stop anything that's bad. Uh, it's uh the commons, the gover- government, the church. So all these different people that are all interacting together in a big soup that we consider to be a society, and they're all working in this economic system. And then we have a gaming system in between, which allows us to balance between those things so that we can think about you know, stories between everything from, I'm just, I need to go find this street sorcerer to, yeah, it's like we're going to go battle over the control of the salt flats of Eversink, which... I I would Uh, love to spend some time on.
0: I would like to give a call out for another game which does economics uh, to a ridiculously fantastic degree. Uh, Red Markets.
2: I've never played it.
0: So, basic principle behind Red Markets is yeah, so we had a zombie apocalypse, but it was unevenly distributed. Uh, So, there are some strongholds that are safe from the zombie apocalypse, functionally. And uh, the rich people get to live in those nice, safe buildings, uh, those nice, safe uh, sanctuaries. Uh, everyone else um, effectively goes dumpster diving through zombie apocalypse land, taking life insurance policies, proof of uh, zombies' heads as proof of death, um, bringing back zombie grandma uh, because some rich uh, CEO wants their grandmother back in, for an experimental treatment. Y- you name it. Um, so you're sent out to go and effectively harvest financial resources uh, of various kinds from zombies. Now, the reason why this is a brilliant is because you have to pay for things like life insurance uh medical transport emergencies uh upkeep for your gear, so it's all about the poverty cycle
2: Interesting.
0: Um, uh so if you so going out on a job is a uh, I i am going to use up this much of my gun this much of my uh it's going to affect my uh life uh survival risks to this extent, so i'm gonna have to invest this amount in my medical care. Um, I'm not going to uh, pay for that special level that gets a helicopter, uh, hella evac if I'm dying. So if I'm, I, they'll have to haul me
3: out in a wheelbarrow because
0: uh, I don't have the money for that.
3: And this um, this this comes back to the traveler thing. This is the yeah. the classic Oregon Trail model for for lack of a, a better thing. The um, there there is a mode of play where. Putting together a spreadsheet and balancing costs can just be super fun for a certain kind of player. Um, I I will call out, oh god, you have to be careful with that because those are the most dangerous players on the planet. Um, And and if you have not made the system incredibly robustly unfair, they will find a way to break it and bankrupt your entire economy. Um, I mean, this has
0: health care and health insurance in a post-apocalyptic zombie world. So yeah, you don't have to worry about that. It's fine. So it, that's it is to mean.
2: all kinds of questions in my head, <laughs> like like uh, how how do you actually build actuarial tables around the zombie apocalypse, and who actually prices all the things that could possibly happen to you in the zombie apocalypse? And
3: it, it's uh, and it, oh and no, it, I, I've got an answer for you. you, know, it's, you know, it's Vegas, baby.
2: Oh, it's Vegas!
3: It's not actuarials. It's 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 the house. Um. So here's the other thing.
2: Oh, wait. This is more interesting.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um.
1: So I mean, the I mean, the, the, the thing is obviously that uh the house is the model until actuarial science catches up. Sure. That's that's how it yep. works. I mean, life insurance before probably 1930 was Vegas. Yeah. Essentially. Essentially, yeah. And that's why you could, you know. Uh, Make money as a serial killer back in the good old days, uh, uh, but that? the but the but the but the he new likes rich people. <laughs> but the new um, uh, uh, the new uh, uh, systems come in, and it's um, uh, it's about information. And so yeah. you could argue that in the uh, fifty years in the future of red markets, uh, they'll have an actuarial system that actually can handle all the variables of of zombie apocalypse because you'll have a big enough database that you can start having um uh, valid. statistically valid prices right so wait, 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 make- we're,
2: we're, we're doing data science in the zombie apocalypse yeah.
1: yes I mean, because there are areas that are not zombie apocalyptic, the, the 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 rich people houses, you know, whatever area that is. I don't yeah. know because I don't
3: know the world. But- hey. we, we were you're earlier making the statement that money is just information. And so hey, data hey. science and data transmission speeds both matter hugely for our, our money yes. purposes.
2: Yes, prices, um, prices are just information. But wait a second, wait a second. I have this, this crazy idea about running that game with a group of people that do nothing but raid old rich people like neighborhoods to take over their houses to build data centers.
1: There you go. Yep. Right. right you, know. you, you you break into like um uh the 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 big um uh what is it it's the fiber optic switching
2: yeah. place yep.
1: in in memphis or omaha or wherever it is one of those Dude. where all the fiber optic cables come down so they can cross the mississippi there you go
3: you, you form the group of adventurers who's not going out and gathering things they're just watching other adventurers die so you can get better actuarial yes tables. That's and, true. And, and, and,
1: yes adventurers that go into to uh oh god running the wire yes not the TV, The yep. Wire, which is also great, but the the yep. great Chicago outfit scammed The Wire. Yes, wire because you have advanced information that your clients don't, you're able to manipulate the odds. Oh crap! And say uh, there's some zombie-killing uh, adventurer who's out there doing better than he should be. He's he's really good. He's a he's a, a, an ash or somebody. Well, in order to protect your back end, you've got to kill him. Oh my God! There's, yep. There's yep. This is fantastic. Right and just gunning oh. down in the street.
2: Wait, who wrote this game? Because I think yep. we have a supplement. I think uh, we have- Caleb
3: Stokes. Yep.
2: All right. And this, by uh, the way, is all the stuff games. that
3: should be going. This is all the stuff that should be going into every cyberpunk game you play.
2: i want to write a if, cyberpunk game. If you game do a
3: cyberpunk game that is not abusing fintech for these purposes, then then you are missing out on on what is cyberpunk these days. Now, there is one thing
2: you
0: need to know in addition to this that sweetens the pie. What? Society is slowly it's reclaiming group. zombie land. Mm-hmm. So that's why people are going out to get land deeds and proof of death for inheritance rules, so that when we reclaim uh, Fallen Pittsburgh, now I own
3: Fallen Pittsburgh.
2: I don't want to own Pittsburgh. Oh, it's that's a sh- that, that is that is such an amazing
3: think. suckers game.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> Yep. So, All right. Yeah,
0: so yeah, that's it. There's a lot of uh, I I can sell you a bridge.
1: No, seriously. I'll sell you the Golden Gate Bridge.
2: It's got maintenance fees.
1: It's too much upkeep. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a mug's game.
2: Yeah, no, it's too much investment there. No pass. Yep.
3: Yeah. All right. Yeah. We, it, with the 15 minute warning, we got a couple of questions in the backlog and and they're actually pretty interesting ones. So yeah. one okay. of them is um what do well, we have a moderator the can... i know but i happen to have it open <laughs> okay that's fair what are the panelists thoughts about systems that use abstract levels of resources versus versus currency systems um systems that versus use, like actual money systems that use abstract
1: resources are telling you they don't want to uh, be uh, uh like, well, by a bunch of accounting majors right <laughs> i mean the uh the, the notion of, of an abstract system is this is not where play happens. play happens yep. somewhere else yep. yep I mean play always happens where the I game don't. is most granular that's that's the most uh finely defined yeah, that's why D and d is about I, combat and there's other stuff I respect uh, a game with, uh, with an actual price value, even a game like D d as Emily has uh, uh, uh demonstrated time and again can be made to be about that and then. Yep. That's either a good thing or a terrible thing, depending on how many uh, finance majors you have in your game group, I guess.
0: I respectfully disagree, just on the grounds that granularity can be granularity in statistical outcomes, and then it just jumps into a stats game. So I'm specifically thinking of Torchbearer, where you are trying to bring up your wealth stat, and your ability to increase your wealth stat Increases the higher amount your wealth stat is. Sure, but going from zero to one is nightmarish because you need to effectively artificially boost your wealth by bringing in a whole bunch of treasure. So, and the so the chances of succeeding on various things that will improve your financial position um, and sure, avoiding incurring additional is debt not,
1: is based on the game matter. Yeah, the game in Torchbearer is not a financial game. Right, your wealth stat is just your 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 basically your experience level.
3: It's, it's yeah, a, yeah, color on it.
1: Yeah, right. It, it, and you can't and you can't monetize it or even di- divide it up as much as you can experience points because uh, Luke is saying the the game is game is no more about wealth than D and D is about level. D and D is about fighting. Uh, Torchbearer is about misery. Um, and in a good way. I mean, I, I love Luke and I love Torchbearer, but um, the, the the game is about that specific expression of immiseration, um, in terms of not even combat, just the awful life uh, life experience of being in a dungeon. So yeah. that that's not what we're talking about, Jason. We're that's talking fair. about M- misery and encumbrance. Play, what what to to what extent play happens around that value, and it, with an abstracted wealth system, uh, you're either doing it. Uh, uh, as a sort of you know, like credit rating in uh, in Call of Cthulhu, it's a you know it's an engine for uh, for role playing and for right. setting up one or another kind of story, but it isn't really part of the core activity of the game. I think Eversync and swords of the Serpentine is kind of in the middle space mm-hmm. where because you've got economic questions with the factions and their balancings is a core part of play. Your wealth stat is a little more important and a little more relevant to that, but still, that's not the fundamental activity necessarily, right. as I understand it. Right? No, um, it's not. No, no,
2: yeah. it's it's storytelling is the right. fundamental activity. And yeah. then you
1: get down to something like Traveler or many, many, many GURPS games, or in in theory, any game that just has dollars and cents as its uh, as its money value or, or some other you know discrete unit of of, of coinage and that game yes absolutely can be suddenly about futures trades and derivatives yep. and branches and all the other ridiculous words yep. we were throwing around earlier in the frighten the audience portion of this paper <laughs> that's, that's yeah, i i
3: having I, I have i have like pleasant memories of role master games where like players were doing oh. terrible things for just two copper um but that was very specific to that sort of game and i think I think every game needs to figure out roughly what order of magnitude it cares about. Yeah. Um, And whether that is a a substance level or a year's income, either one works, but you have to, if that decision is made, then that will tell you what you need to do with your money. Mm. All right. Then one more. Um, could go on. Uh, what are what are some good ways to break through player gm assumptions we've developed living in contemporary systems capitalist economies instant communications extremely flash ship fast shipping market research etc
2: um it's interesting how to break through player assumptions yeah. well i mean
3: I, i'm yeah. going to say to some extent we we explicitly don't want to break them all because like even and D depends on sort of more modern assumptions. Just look at DNC's handling of currency because nobody wants to do a currency simulator. So we They certainly don't want to do a medieval currency simulator.
2: Exactly. No. Oh my God. No. No. I, I don't know. I think I, I want to accept the fact that I'll, at the end of the day, games are about fun, right? So we're we're here to make fun. And if there's a certain set of modern assumptions that are built into the game that either can be used as a shortcut or a shorthand or make the game easier to just get to the story part of the game, which is the important part, then I, I don't think that it's all that important to disavow uh, players of some of those yeah. modern conveniences.
1: It's, oh, the the parallel would be with healing rules, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if any of us were shot or stabbed, we would be in the hospital for weeks, maybe, and then we'd be in physical therapy for months. That's just what happens if you're legitimately shot or stabbed. But that's horribly dull, uninteresting gameplay. It's a counter incentive to doing anything fun. So healing rules, even in the most realistic games, are ridiculously fast and ridiculously uh, consequence-free. Yeah. I mean, with the bare except, I mean, I guess claw law is the is the excuse. But even then, <laughs> it's the damage that's the that's the fun part. The healing is still up. Oh, slap a potion on it, you're good as new tomorrow. Uh, and even in you know very very modern squinty-eyed robust games, healing is, is is desperately accelerated, because yeah. no one wants to play realistic wounding. Similarly, no one wants to play realistic pricing, and the fun certainly again medieval pricing, and because. The notion that you can't make any economic transaction until you're related to the person you're transacting it with, which is the core assumption until about 1800 everywhere in the world. You can't do that in a game. In a game, you have to be hobos who can leave town ahead of your death, your murder warrant.
3: uh, right. uh, right. Having having this default assumption of something reasonably stable and boring is what allows you to introduce exceptions. And make things fun. Exactly. If you've got... If you want to introduce some place in your setting that you know doesn't accept currency and uses one of the the pre currency modes of of trade because those are fun to read about and you, you thought it was really neat to have people putting things on blankets and, and doing non communication trade, do it. You can totally have it there. But unless that is what your game is about, those things are, are more useful as exceptions. Yeah, that's an adventure. I mean that's I not would
0: love Bright yeah. Game World. Yeah. That's correct. I would love the, oh, I need to get a MacGuffin. I have to get it through the people that you can only contact through this merchant network that you can only uh, uh, trade with if you are related to them. So now I have to woo a member of this merchant guild so I can get into the extended family so I can get the MacGuffin. Um, Like,
3: yeah, okay, that's a story. You do not want to have to do a customs check every time you go into into a city. That's Except right. that one time when you're smuggling in the, you know, the the golden bust of the empress. I mean, again, yeah, the the one the one adventure that's yeah. about um, uh, uh,
1: marrying the, uh, the 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 idiot cousin of the trading family is fun. Yep. But if you have to marry an idiot cousin or find <laughs> a family same. connection every time you come back to town, that's, that's stupid fun. and boring, and no one yeah. likes
2: it. Yeah, um, Here, here's here's the overwhelming thing: don't design boring things into your game. <laughs>
1: There you if, go. Yeah, the first rule.
2: If it's boring, cut it, right? right. And,
1: or abstract it.
2: Or abstract it. Just don't, don't put it into your game. Just don't. It's yep. about fun.
0: That said, if you want to bring in, emphasize that it's not a modern world with overnight uh, Amazon free shipping, you can do things such as the seasonality of food. I'm sorry, we don't have any more green vegetables. It's winter. Come back in six months. Uh, I'm sorry, getting um, this spice. I mean, only a noble can get the spice. We need, to, like, if you find a
3: bag of cumin, that is better than gold. The the one thing I will say is if you love your maps and you love your D, because uh, um and I'm totally in that space, there is a type of map that you can sometimes find. Uh, you can find examples of pretty easily by Googling. Usually England is at the middle of them, that are color-coded by how long it takes to get places. Yep. Um that is an exercise that is well worth doing on whatever your DD map is, and recognize that there are caveats in flight and, and ways to get around it. You mentioned door. Yeah, yeah. But if but knowing how far away things are in distance is not the same thing as knowing how far away they are in time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and if you do a time map of your setting, a whole lot of things will sort of logically snap into place that you maybe hadn't thought about before. And of course, you have to keep in mind that
1: time is different on, on water or land. Yep. Uh, as, again, as late as 1750, it took longer to get from London to Edinburgh by land than it took to get to, from London to Cape Town. I see. Yep. So, <laughs> distance apart is a different number. Very uh, much. Obviously, so. you'd get on a boat and get to Edinburgh much faster. But if you're on land, you're just screwed.
2: Yeah. No. So don't don't travel on land. Yeah. That's that's what oh, you kids. I
3: mean, or or you take the other solution and just do the Eberron solution. Uh, Eberron is chock a block full of of cool Magic setting trains. elements that are just yep. excuses yeah. for modern convenience. Yes. I mean, Hellenistic. To be hell, fair, you can also have, have Romans a, it
1: has a similar uh, assumption. What? You can also have
0: Romans. Sure. <laughs> we have an empire that builds roads. This changes the yeah. variables, and now you've got an old empire.
1: Yeah. And there were so Roman well. roads that led all the way north, and you, it still took that long. <laughs> yeah. It's just, <laughs> so, just so physically impossible to do it until you have a horse right relays every right.
3: 20 miles. Okay. 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 Yes. Ma- Ma- Mickey, Mickey's throwing the we should say who we are flag for wrapping up. Um, all right. Who am I? Uh, that's that's M. uh she she's awesome you should read her dungeonomics column in uh,
2: on critical uh hits. up
3: on critical hits i posted the uh link in the chat so it's there for for scroll back what's um, your what's your uh your social media um uh, people
1: can follow your every utterance and worship you you don't, don't want to
2: do that that's terrible you totally but, do her twitter's
1: um, awesome i totally do
2: yeah so i'm multiplexer on twitter so it's multiplexer. uh at twitter so and uh, i've got a blog which is project multiplexer.com which i occasionally post a rant about
1: um and you can buy pre-orders of swords of the serpentine even now on (laughs) (laughs) pellagrainpress.com
2: i don't even remember who i
1: am ken knows his business (laughs) yes my first rodeo for god's sake (laughs) um i'm kenneth height uh i'm kenneth height on twitter and kenneth height on facebook Follow my every social media utterance uh, religiously, and you'll find out what I'm up to. Uh, Most recently, I'm in the process of writing to the extent possible with Pandemic Brain Hellenistica, my 5e setting set in the good parts version of the third century BC, um, uh, which, by the way, is the only time in pre 18th century history a cash economy actually functioned. So, not not an accident that I set things there. And uh, working on uh, some other stuff, Fall of Delta Green, my most recent uh, role-playing game, also from Pell Grain Press, uh, deals with the 1960s, but resources are abstracted, as they very well should be. Yep.
3: Uh, I'm Rob Donahue. Uh, I write so little these days that I don't just give away that uh, it's hard to point out. I'm r-d-o-n-o-g-h-u-e on Twitter. And I guess if I were to plug something... um, I would happily plug the Evil Hat Kickstarter for Thirsty Sword Lesbians, which is doing fantastically, but uh, could be doing more fantastically with your interest. Uh, I can take no credit for anything in that book, except for cheering enthusiastically as Fred showed me previews.
0: Uh, and I'm Jason Pitt, Genesis of Legend Publishing, at Genesis of Legend on Twitter. I just finished the Kickstarter for my game Sig City of Blades, which is Blades in the Dark set in a multi fantasy setting. Uh, which has all sorts of fun trade stuff. Uh, And you can find that over at kickstarter.games at least for the next month or so. So, uh, www.kickstarter.games
1: I guess I should plug uh, my podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff where uh, we talk about all manner of fun nonsense in exactly as much detail as you need for games and no more, we promise. That's kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com or wherever fine podcasts are sold.
3: Basically, just look for any RPG podcast awards and you'll find a link to it.
2: Yeah, that's true.
3: Uh, <laughs> that sweet of you to say.
2: It's a pretty good podcast. You guys yep. should listen to it.
3: Yep. I'll see, also,
2: m
1: said funny. so. m said so. Yeah.
2: And I'm going to plug Kevin. You f- follow Kevin. He's at Kevin Culp, all right? Eh,
3: you follow Emily. Yeah. You've basically got all the good part.
2: <laughs> no, you should follow Kevin too.
3: But uh, they, 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 they make a, a dynamic duo. Big thumbs up on both. Yes, yeah, so does all Batman right. and Thank Robin. All the one much. you follow
1: is Batman. <laughs>
2: oh god all All right right. thank
3: you everybody thank you